sermon text for this morning is from Romans chapter 10, verses 14 to 21. How then will they call on him who have, they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news, but they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. But I ask, have they not heard? Indeed they have, for their voice has gone out to all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. But I ask, did Israel not understand? First, Moses says, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. Then Isaiah is so bold as to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. But of Israel, he says, all day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. I'm sure you are like me in loving good news. I'd love to hear good news. I, I still remember the, uh, the day that Carol said yes uh, to my proposal. That was very good news. Or when she had said to me, uh, you're going to be a father after taking a pregnancy test. Uh, there are times where good news, uh, it, it just, um, well, but in your life and my life, it's sweet to hear good news. And, you know, last week we heard good news about the gospel of Jesus Christ for all those who put their hope in the Lord, that they won't be disappointed, they won't be ashamed. We, we read that there would be no judgment for sin. You will not stand guilty before God because of the forgiveness of Christ. We heard that there's no shame on that last day when you stand before God for those who put their hope in the Lord, and that there will be riches, glorious riches in his presence for those who put their hope in the Lord. I mean, this is great news. This is what makes us Christians. This is what brings forgiveness. This is what makes us right before God, that we've put our hope in the Lord, that we have confessed with our mouth that he is the Lord, that we have believed in our heart that God has raised him from the dead. This is what makes us new Israel. This is what makes us the children of Abraham. This is all great news. But what Paul's getting to in our text today is, how do we get to that place? How can we call upon the name of the Lord? In other words, you notice in verse 13, he says, for all who call upon the name of the Lord, for everyone, that you'll be saved. Well, how do we do that? And that's what Paul's driving at right now. How do we actually call upon him? How do we come to him by faith? that we might have this great hope. You know, the passage breaks up into two parts. First is 14 and 15. And that's really, it's going to just, um, it emphasizes the necessity of sharing the gospel. The gospel has to be shared. We, we have to speak about the gospel to others. In verses 16 to 21, you kind of have uh, the fact that the, the danger of rejecting the gospel, if the first part is the importance of sharing the gospel, well, now you see the danger of rejecting the gospel, the danger of neglecting such a salvation. 
Now, many of you have heard those verses, particularly the questions, those, that series of rhetorical questions in 15 or 14 and 15, and you've just heard it in the context of missions. Um, but I want to remind you that, that it, while it may apply to that, it isn't about that specifically or primarily. Paul's still answering the question back in Romans chapter 9, verse 6. Did God's word fail? Why didn't the Jewish nation believe? Why didn't they come to understand Jesus as Messiah? God had sent preachers. They preached. They heard the message, but they didn't believe. And so Paul is reminding us of the need to share the gospel, but he's reminding us of the danger of here's a classic example of people who did not respond. So there's both an encouragement to us, but there's a warning as well to us. So let's look at the first part in verses 14 and 15 about the importance. You see in this series of four rhetorical questions the conditions that have to be met. You see as he talks about how can they call on the one, that's picking up from verse 13, how can they call on the one that they have not believed in? So the, the first thing is believing. We have to believe and believing, obviously, assumes a level of knowledge. We've to, you know, got to know what we're believing in. So we have to know that Jesus Christ is the Lord. He's the sovereign one. He's God in the flesh, and he's come. And God has raised him from the dead, which presumes that he's died for our sins, but God's raised him for our justification. So we have to know that. To believe, you have to know the facts of the gospel. Do you know these facts? Now, just the facts of the gospel. We have to know them. But of course, knowing the facts of the gospel is not sufficient. Many people know the facts of the gospel. The key ingredient for believing is trust. We don't just know the facts of the gospel. We actually trust in them. We, we actually believe them to be true and we're resting in them. Now, how do we know that we trust? Well, we know that we're trusting in the facts of the gospel when we're no longer trusting in the facts of our life, how moral we are, how spiritual we are all the good things that we've done. You've got to rest your trust in something. It's either going to be in what you have done to make yourself right before God or what he has done for us to make us right before God. And so you know that you trust in the gospel, that you believe in the gospel when you abandon having confidence in your own efforts, in your own works. Even though you may have grown in spiritual ways, praise God for that, we just don't trust in it. We don't lean on it as this is my ticket or this is going to be why God says, well done to me. But if you trust in this gospel of the Lord who has died for us and been raised, then you naturally will cherish him. I mean, won't you treasure the one who saves you? Won't your hearts be moved with deepened affections for him? It seems to make sense to me. We we love those that have cared for us so well. And so believing, you know, how can they call on the one they haven't believed in? Believing involves a cherishing. You think about it in the Apostle Paul's life. When the Apostle Paul, you know, in Philippians chapter 3, he talks about all the things that he had done in the flesh. He was of the tribe of Benjamin. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees. As to the law, he was blameless circumcised on the eighth day, eighth day. He's like this Cub Scout with all the badges on his chest. Look at all that I've done. And these things are very important to me. They put me in good standing with God. And he says, I consider it all rubbish compared to knowing Jesus my Lord. That's the treasuring, the valuing. 
He rips all the badges of his own doing off. I don't need these. These are rubbish to me now that I know Christ. So to believe in him is to cherish him, to trust him. Now, of course, Paul's driving at the importance of us sharing the gospel. He says, how can they call upon the name of the Lord without believing? And how can they believe without hearing? So hearing is the next condition here. How do we call upon the name of the Lord? We believe, but we have to hear first, right? The gospel has to go forth in words, in conversation, in dialogue. The gospel, we don't just expose people to the facts, but we have to make sure and speak in a way that they can comprehend what the gospel means. You kind of see that in verse 17 where he says, faith comes by hearing and hearing the words of Christ. We have to speak about these words of Christ. It's not just about a moral God in the heavens who's created all things, but it's about a good God in the heavens who has created all things and have found us wanting and has provided a son, the Messiah, the Christ, to come and save. We need words, though. I mean, for people to call upon the name of the Lord, we need words. Now, many of you have heard that, that um, quote attributed to Francis of Assisi, you know, preach the gospel, preach the gospel, preach the gospel, and if necessary, use words. Now, most scholarship would not attribute that to St. Francis of Assisi. They can't find it in any of his writings. But even if he did say it, it would be wrong. Y- you need words. Y- you need words. Now, his point, or whoever put together that sentence, they're trying to emphasize our lives, don't want to dr- you know, drone out our words. We want to have lives that display the gospel. But we need words. Words need to be, we need to speak words of the gospel to people. So as you walk down these series of questions, how can they call on one they haven't believed, and how can they believe in the one they haven't heard, and how can they hear without a preacher? Now that word for preacher is not pastor, it's not pulpiteer, it's just a herald. You know, the herald you see it in the old movies, the ancient way of communication was, of course, by a town crier, kind of a living newspaper, if you will. He'd go into the city square and speak. That's what a herald is. A herald doesn't make up his own message to deliver. It's given to him, and he goes off and delivers the message. He doesn't reduce it, adjust it, change it. He just delivers what's been given to him. And what Paul's saying is the importance of sharing the gospel is through these heralds that, that you people, actually, not pastors, people speak about the nature of the gospel to their families and to their friends, to their co-workers, to those in their community. That, that you're the ones that do it. That all of us, we are heralds, just conversations with people. But, but it's people that bring about the message. It, it is in other forms of media, per se. That, that may also distribute a message, but ultimately it has to come from a living being, a person, like a neighbor. So Carol and I were talking last night about this, and she had reminded me about my own mother's conversion. You know, it was just a neighbor that went to her. They moved into Maryland, Sword Park, Maryland, way back in the early 60s, just a young kid, and, and a neighbor just invited her to go to a prayer meeting and began to just speak to her about the gospel. She wasn't a theologian. She wasn't trained in it. She just spoke about, she was a herald. She said, this is what God has done for us. And that began to plant the seeds that would ultimately result in my own mother's conversion. Just one neighbor. I never even met her, or don't even remember meeting her. But she was a herald, and it had its impact. So how can they call on Jesus? Well, they've got to believe, but how can they believe unless they hear? And how can they hear unless a preacher preaches? But then how can the preacher 
preach unless he's sent. You see that in the fourth sending. So it's believing, hearing, preaching, and sending. And this is a critical step here. And, and when we think of sending, we think across the globe. I think across the street. It can be both. They have to go. You know, the person, the herald, has to take it upon themselves. Say, I'm going to go and speak about these things. And, of course, he draws this line from Isaiah 52 where he says, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring uh, and preach good news. You know, not all the body parts, I'm not sure I'd start with the feet as being beautiful. I want you to think kind of pre-shoe day. You know, it's a sandal, it's dirt, they're dirty, they're swollen feet. What makes those so beautiful except the message that they carry? They're carrying a message of the gospel. So Paul's saying, you know, how can they call on this one? Well, somebody's got to carry it to him. Somebody's got to bring it to him. And God's always done that. He's always done that. He sent prophets to the people of Israel. Christ sent apostles out to preach the gospel. The church still sends people out. The word apostle, by the way, while we believe that the office of apostle has ceased with the original 12, the idea of apostle just means to be sent. So we just say little a apostle, people going out. This is how God's always done it. So when Paul in 14 and 15 is just saying, hey, church, this is how people call upon the name of the Lord. How can they call upon? Well, they have to believe, but how can they believe? Well, they have to hear the gospel first. So how can they hear? Well, the preacher's got to tell them. Well, how does the preacher tell them he's got to go? That's really what the importance Paul's trying to convince us of the importance. Do you see the importance of being in a position to share the gospel? Do you see that God has almost in a way tied himself to us in sharing the gospel? You know, many of us right now, you, you may be thinking, well, yeah, but we learned in chapter 9 that God is sovereign over those who will believe. So do we really need to do it? Is that kind of unnecessary because he's promised to save? Not one of those given to me will I lose, Jesus says. And what we end up doing is taking two truths and we've, we have them fight with each other. God has not only ordained those who would believe, but he's also ordained the means by which they are saved. So salvation seems to rest in the hand of God in chapter 9. <clears throat> in a way, salvation seems to rest in the hand of the church in chapter 10. We're the ones. The importance of us knowing and loving and cherishing the gospel enough to want to share it with those people that we actually care about. John Stott says this in reverse. <clears throat> he says, unless some are commissioned for the task, there will be no preachers. Unless the gospel is preached, sinners will not hear Christ's message and voice. Unless they hear him, they will not believe the truths of his death and resurrection. Unless they call upon his name, they will not be saved. It rests with us in many ways. There's a tension there, no doubt. I don't want to resolve it. They both exist. But do you see the graciousness of God in asking you to do this? Do you see the kindness of God in involving us in this task? That we play a part, if you will, with God? That, that he's taking in his saved children and sending them back out? That, that we have been granted this, this role of participation? We don't create spiritual life but we participate in the bringing of it. So it's really not, in some ways, it's analogous to a, a husband and wife and having a child. 
They don't create the child. They don't knit the child in the, child, in the mother's womb. They don't ordain days for the child. But they participate with God in the bringing forth of physical life. So we participate with God in the bringing forth of spiritual life. That God is drawing in his people to save his people. So that in glory we are all united in serving one another. Do you see the graciousness of God? This is probably the most pleasure I have in terms of pastoring. Is not just seeing people come to salvation in Christ, but even grow. Uh, our interaction with each other as we begin to kind of walk that final journey out to see God. This, this graciousness of God to have us be useful, both in the cultivation of new life, but also in the development of Christ-likeness in the lives of one another. But, but do you see the urgency of the task? The task is still great, and it's a task, as I said, not for the pastor, but for the people. The, the task remains strong before us to share the gospel. The church, doesn't, the church doesn't have a strategy for doing this. The strategy is what the Bible says, pray for people. I mean, do you pray for those that are near you, that know you, that know your life? Do you pray for them? I, I would encourage you to read missionary biographies. Uh, start to stimulate your own soul about how God moves among and through cultures in ways that would blow your mind. Uh, begin to reach out to others, cultivate friendships. I mean, these are things that we can do to begin to engage people with. I realize that it can be uncomfortable, it can be kind of awkward sometimes. But again, considering, if you consider your own salvation, what he has done to save you, and you really believe it, and you really trust him for it, and you really cherish him, you will find that ability to overcome the awkwardness that you may feel. Now, if you're sitting here and you're saying, yeah, but what about those people that don't hear the gospel? Will they be saved? You know, the innocent savages, let's say, Remember the first time I heard that, I'm like, innocent savages. That might be an oxymoron. I'm not sure. Innocent savage? Maybe we've got to come up with a second different word. But, um, but what do we do with them? Are they saved? Well, of course, the question is, if they're innocent, yes, they're saved. But are they innocent? We've already read in chapter 3 that Jew or Gentile, religious or irreligious, all have fallen short of God's glory. God is known to the world. He said that his invisible attributes, his qualities have been seen by all. And yet we exchange this glory for images made by men. We have suppressed the truth. We have not given thanks. We have not brought him glory. Is there anyone innocent before God? No, the shocker of salvation is that he would save any. Not that he would save some. So, so the importance, I cannot stress to you, I want to convince you the importance that we have to share the gospel. Now here's the dark side, starting in 16. There's the danger of rejecting the gospel. There's the danger of neglecting so great a salvation. You see that in 16 where he says, but they did not obey. They disobeyed the gospel. Now, of course, Paul is speaking about uh, Israel, 
you know, he's speaking about the fact that Israel had rejected the message of the gospel that had been delivered to them. It doesn't seem like Paul's surprised because you see him quote Isaiah 53, Lord, who has believed our message? Who's believed it? You know, here the, the Jewish nation had preachers sent by God who preached the words such that they heard, but the missing ingredient was that they did not believe. They didn't believe the message that was delivered to them. And I think you see that in verse 17, when he says, faith comes by hearing, and hearing the word of Christ. They stumbled over the word about Christ. They stumbled over a crucified Messiah. They were ready for a victorious, mil uh, a victorious in terms of, you know, kind of a geopolitical military Messiah. They were ready for that, not a crucified Messiah. They stumbled over the stumbling stone, and they didn't believe. And Paul's giving us a warning here. Don't neglect this. Listen, the message goes out. To hear the gospel is essential, but you must believe. You have to respond by faith. You can't just understand it, comprehend it, even think it's true, but you have to rest in it. You have to trust in it as evidenced by your cherishing it. Now, Paul anticipates these objections that are going to come up. Look in verse 18. He says, did they hear? Hey, maybe they didn't hear. Maybe you want to say, well, they didn't really hear the gospel. He says, no, indeed they did. Now, notice what he quotes, though. Look with me in 18, because he quotes Psalm 19.4. Their voice has gone out to all the earth, and their words to the ends of the earth. Now, interesting psalm to quote. Psalm 19, if you remember, at least the first half of it is really a, a psalm about the revelation of God in creation, right? The skies proclaim the handiwork. The heavens declare the glory of God. So in this psalm, David is saying, you know what? God's knowledge is known everywhere. Why? Because of creation. The heavens declare the glory of God. So why would Paul use a creational psalm to advance this idea that, that salvation is going to go to the ends of the world? Well, I think it's just that. I think that as God's glory is displayed to the world through creation, the glory of Christ now is displayed to the world through the gospel. Now, how has the world heard this word? Well, the fact that Gentiles were coming into the kingdom, the Jewish people should have seen his glory is going out to the world. The world's coming into the church. The inclusion of the Gentiles was evidence to the Jewish nation that, in fact, Jesus was the Messiah. What else would promote the world coming to the knowledge of the gospel? So by the very inclusion of the Gentiles, the Jewish people had evidence, yes, Jesus Christ is the Messiah. But he doesn't stop there, because the next objection comes up in 19. Well, maybe they didn't understand. Well, maybe they heard it, but they didn't understand it. So what Paul does is he goes to the law and the prophets. He quotes from Deuteronomy 31, and he quotes from Isaiah 65. He says, no, 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 they understood well. They understood well. In Deuteronomy 31, it's interesting. If you go back and read it later, this is Moses is at the end of his life. He's about to die, and he gives this last song. Really, it was a prophecy. And, and he's saying to the nation of Israel, you're going to reject the Lord your God. You've been given all these blessings. You've been given all this knowledge. You've been given all these privileges. And you're going to reject them. And the judgment that will come upon you for that rejection will be that I will make you jealous by raising up another nation and by giving to them the privileges that you have neglected. 
And when that comes upon you, you will know that I, the Lord God, are judging you. Again, the inclusion of the Gentiles will be evidence that they have failed to believe in the Messiah. Evidence to them. And then he quotes Isaiah, who says virtually the same thing. In Isaiah 65, he says, I've been found by those who did not seek me. I've shown myself to those who did not ask me. In other words, the Gentile nations weren't looking for God. They weren't pursuing God, but they found him. It was like a megaphone. These Gentiles coming to faith in Jesus Christ, finding God gracious, apart from works of the law, simply by grace, was a megaphone to them. Jesus is the Messiah to whom you have to believe. So you see Paul, he talks about the importance of proclaiming the gospel in 14 and 15, but then he warns us about, about the danger of neglecting that very gospel in 16 to 21. Israel becomes like a microcosm for us. We see the world in Israel and their rejection. And God's saying, no, I've held out my hands all the day long to rebellious and contrarian people. It's a warning. Hey, don't trip on this idea of sovereignty and responsibility. You see them both in this section 9 through 11. We saw the sovereignty of God very clear in chapter 9. You know, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I'll have compassion on whom I have compassion. I'm the potter, you're the clay. It's clear, God's driving the train. But then in chapter 10, you see this responsibility borne by Israel for failing to believe. Five times in chapter 10 alone, they're given responsibility for not believing. What is it? How do I untangle it? I don't. I just proclaim it to you. They both are true. One author said that it's not irrational. It's supra-rational. It goes above our ability to rationalize and understand. They both are true. We worship God for this incredible truth that, yes, God is divinely sovereign, and yet we are responsible to the word that has been preached to us. Don't trip on this. They both exist. To try to spend a lot of time to untangle it is often very fruitless. But then I would also say, don't think that belief is evidential. In other words, don't believe, you know, when the person says, well, I just need more evidence before I can believe. Evidence, uh, belief has never been rooted in evidence. It's not evidential, it's moral. It's we don't want to believe the gospel. Again, going back through Romans chapter 1, we see that all people know God. And in chapter 1, we see that all people have rejected God. We have suppressed the truth. We've gone our own way. We see that all people are guilty before God, both religious and irreligious, as they try to approach God in their own ways. You may say, well, I never had the law. I didn't know about the Ten Commandments. So I can't be held accountable, but you have your own law. Whatever that law is on your heart, whatever the code of ethics that you have, it even varies over your life. It changes and shifts. But even the law that you have in your own soul, Paul says, you still don't even keep that one. So you're still guilty of breaking whatever law you have. Belief or disbelief is not rooted ultimately in evidence, but in desire. And, you know, even the agnostics of our generation, even like an agnostic or even atheist of the variety of Huxley would admit this. In fact, he wrote these words. He says, I had motives for not wanting the world to have meaning. 
and consequently assumed that it had none and was able without any difficulty to find satisfying reasons for this assumption. For myself, as no doubt for most of my contemporaries, atheism was essentially an instrument of liberation from a certain system of morality. We objected to the morality because it interfered with our sexual freedom. So it's not looking at the evidence of the existence of God and ought we to humble ourselves before him. We don't want him. We don't want to live according to his rules. We don't want to bend the knee. That's ultimately the root of disbelief. Not you got to generate more evidence for people. That is a smokescreen. It's a clay pigeon. It is not the real deal. We don't want to bend the knee. We want to be God. You see that from a very young age of every single human being. They want to call the shots. So don't think that disbelief of the gospel, you've got to furnish more evidence for that. And then thirdly, I would say don't, the danger is don't neglect this kindness of God. Look at verse 21 with me. You know, oftentimes you read in Romans chapter 9, I'll have compassion on whom I have compassion. I'll have mercy on whom I have mercy. God almost seems to sound like some sort of dictator on a throne, kind of just dropping the thunderbolts out of his divine fiats that he goes and levels. But you see a fuller picture of God here. All day long, I held out my hands. All day long. You see the mercy and the kindness of God sending preacher after preacher after preacher. Think about the parable that Jesus taught about the landowner who went to collect from the tenants of his vineyard and, and he sent one servant who got beat up. He sent another servant who got beat up. And finally he said, I'll send my own son. They'll respect him. And they take him out and they kill him. The kindness of God, we can't miss it. This is a stinging indictment when we fail to believe in the gospel. All day long I've held out my hands. How you respond to the gospel dictates your standing before God. That the gospel's been preached. You know, if you're a Christian here, you don't want to ignore the privileges that we have had. We want to leverage them. We want to see the incredible privilege that we have in knowing this gospel and take up that responsibility because we see now the importance of preaching. We see that God has ordained that through the preached word, people will come, the heralded word, I should say. But if you're not Christian here, you bear responsibility for hearing this very message right now. In fact, preaching is really a form of judgment. Prejudgment, I would say. Because you have been put on notice. How you respond to this gospel. If you're here and you're not a Christian, how you respond to this message that I've just given you will determine, in part, along with other things you've heard of the God, will determine your standing before God. They did not believe. They disobeyed the gospel. You know, it shouldn't surprise you that when Jesus began his ministry, now Paul's only carrying on what Jesus did. You know, when Jesus entered the ministry after John was put in prison in Mark chapter 1, Jesus says these words, the very first words recorded by Jesus in the Gospel of Mark. He says, the kingdom of God is at hand. Of course it is, because he's bringing the kingdom. Repent and believe the good news. Believe the good news. It's faith in the gospel. 
It's calling out upon the Lord. It's faith in the gospel that saves us. So th this, is a, this is a really, it's an encouraging passage to us that his name will go to the nations and to the neighbors through his church. And yet it has that darker side of warning that they did not obey. They were disobedient. They were contrary to the gospel. May we never be. And if you're here and, you, and you, you have been and you've never rested, you never trusted, you've never believed, becoming a Christian is simply by repenting of your sins, recognizing that God has created you and yet has held out his hands to you all the day. That you could call upon the name of the Lord, Jesus, and be saved. There's no disappointment in calling out upon him. Let us not miss the mercy and the goodness and the kindness of God in wanting to save, in desiring. You see him like a father before an unruly child throwing himself into a fit on the floor, and he's longing to be reconciled to that child. That's the picture Paul ends with. It's a quote from Isaiah 65. He uses six different Old Testament quotes. This is the same God through the Old and the New Testament. Let's take a minute and just pray and ask God for wisdom on these things, boldness perhaps if you're a Christian. If you're not a Christian, ask God to reveal himself to you, to display these things to be true. And I'll pray for us in just a moment.